0: Are here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 14 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Bitcoin's Segwit 2x drama. Twice the drama, twice the Segwit. Uh, an update on the future of Switzerland's crypto valley. Is it the center of ICOs? Lies, fraud, scams, deceit, and North Korea. Reuters releases an investigative report into the dark side of cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrencies go to the dogs on with the news joining me for the news is the one and only colin g platt colin g platt how are you sir
1: I'm doing all right. I'm on the Tropic of Capricorn in Australia.
0: Uh, living it up on the wrong side of the world, or the right side of the world for so many listeners. Uh, so, Colin, uh, never a dull week in the subject of blockchain. What have you been up to? What's been uh, interesting you?
1: Uh, what's been interesting me has generally not been cryptocurrencies, believe it or not. But what we have found really interesting is this ongoing drama of Bitcoin Segwit to X.
0: Right. Talk to me about SegWit 2x. Like, there's a story on uh, Bitcoin.org. Is it operators are aiming to denounce SegWit 2x? So, what's 2x and SegWit? And just like let's let's have a little recap of this because we talked about Bitcoin forking and Bitcoin Cash on episodes four and five, and that was all to do with the first SegWit. So, what's SegWit? And then let's get into 2x.
1: So, um, over the summer, the Bitcoin network. Took on um, an upgrade called Segregated Witness or SegWit. Essentially, what it did is it pulled a bunch of information out of the transaction because we have limited block sizes. Every 10 minutes or so, on average, Bitcoin releases a new block that's limited to one megabyte in size currently. And um, we found that could only handle about seven transactions. Some very smart people said, well, let's do some things to this transaction including segregating something called the witness. Um, that makes the transaction smaller, which means we can shove more than seven transactions per second in there. What we're talking about now, part of this was a compromise where people said, let's put together a roadmap. Um, and not only are we are going to integrate this SegWit thing, but we're also going to increase that block size from one megabyte to two megabytes.
0: Ooh increasing the block size so we've got this block there's only so much we can fit inside it and because we can only fit so much inside of it first we've taken a little bit out of it and put it somewhere else or, or, and then the second thing we've done is we've increased the size of the block and that one's a lot more controversial why is that controversial so we have two types of forks uh, what forks are in the bitcoin
1: network and other cryptocurrencies is when there's a possibility or a segment of of the world that says we're going to take a snapshot in history And instead of going left, we're going to go right. So part of the world went towards Segwit, uh, and that was called a soft fork. Essentially, it meant I can still read everything in in the past. It would still be valid. It's just we happen to have a new bit of functionality that, in this case, reduces the size of a transaction
0: so I like to think about this as being like when you upgrade your software on I don't know like you're patching uh, Windows or Safari from or, or your browser you're getting the new version of it but some people are running the old version and because a blockchain unlike running a new version of a browser isn't just sitting on your device it's sitting on many people's devices like the actual core operating code is different and the people validating what's happening are different then they disagree on how to validate things so therefore it's like there are two versions of the truth existing because they're running different software as full nodes.
1: Exactly. And it's like if you have a PowerPoint or Excel file, I can still read the old ones that don't have an X on them with my new um, thing that only produces them with Xs in it. There's this other one called a hard fork, which is what um, essentially the 2X, increase in the block size, would require to activate. And what this means is if the soft fork would allow me to read backwards and still accept those old style transactions, the new hard fork would not even accept them. It would just throw them out and say they're invalid if you're running the old version of software. Obviously, if some people don't upgrade their PowerPoint or Excel and they can't read new files, um, that could be a huge catastrophe for anybody sending Excels or PowerPoints. Now, imagine something that's worth 40 billion dollars floating around in the world
0: yeah that's uh and it's splitting the value of that currency again potentially we saw this with bitcoin cash and um, we saw this with the first fork so then there were two versions of bitcoin and now they both hold value but bitcoin's approaching its all-time high again as we we sit here uh, recording four thousand eight hundred dollars i believe uh so surely bitcoin has just kind of rolled on uh, regardless and taken Segwit in its stride i mean what's the prognosis here is uh, are people believing that this is a bit more risky than the last one? A bit more, a bit less consensus about this one, it seems. Oh yeah, I went there.
1: Yeah, you went there. Um, <laughs> what well, was really interesting, and you know, all uh, looking at markets and prices, everybody's just kind of making it up as they go along, right? Um, what I've seen a lot of people say is the way that the cryptocurrency exchanges work is when Segwit 2x does activate, there will again be two coins, or well, actually three coins now if you count Bitcoin Cash, and If you have a current Bitcoin, forget Bitcoin Cash for the moment, you'll also get a Bitcoin 2X Bitcoin uh, because they're not sure which one will win. Maybe both of them like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Currently. Um, So a lot of people are buying into that because they're saying, well, this is free money on the table because they look at what happened with Bitcoin Cash and they want new Bitcoin and old Bitcoin sitting next to each other uh, plus new Bitcoin 2X. So they're hoping that they're going to make a lot of money out of this. And some people are saying this is why the price is going up. Uh, A lot of people are also saying, well, there is less risk in this time because we know that the last time we got out and the price went up of Bitcoin, the main Bitcoin, um, and maybe it'll just keep going up.
0: So we've got a lot of controversy. We've got a lot to watch. But what's the timing on all of this sort of stuff? Because the proof is in the pudding. Like this stuff is coming at us. It is going to happen. Like you say, there's more than $40 billion riding on this now. It's not nothing. And there are some people who you know, that listen to the show that hold on to their Bitcoins and they want to know what's going to happen.
1: Absolutely. Um, so unlike the, the Bitcoin cash, unfortunately, this one's a bit fuzzier on timelines. We know it will be in November. Um, but as of yet, we're on the... In mid-October, they haven't announced an exact date or block quite yet. Um, We're hoping we'll get that in the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, so that people can start planning around that, because a lot of people are worried. um, And for people that are holding Bitcoin and concerned about this, um, a good option, if you're not sure whether you'll keep your new Bitcoin and your old Bitcoin, is to keep it in private wallets and not necessarily on an exchange or any kind of hosted or custody service.
0: Well, that's a grand, useful bit of uh, advice there in terms of how one can protect themselves as as these folks come at themselves. But it's not the uh, the only story. I'm sure we'll follow this one as it continues to develop. Uh, gotta move us to the next one, which is uh, a story from CoinDesk talking about why Switzerland will remain Crypto Valley. And of course, uh, Zug, Switzerland, is is famously known for being Crypto Valley because it's considered quite open to regulating or at housing ICOs and token sales and this comes on the back of FINMA uh, a Swiss regulator issuing some guidance on ICOs as well Uh, and I think that so this code of conduct to weed out scammers I haven't actually seen published but it notes that they are working on uh, a a code of conduct with a number of lawyers uh, a number of trade bodies a number of people actually performing the ICOs and and companies in the space but let's step back from this just refresh like why do we need this uh, in the first place Colin what's what are the What's the possible risks in this token sales space?
1: Yeah, so let's take a big step back. Um, what is an ICO for people that are joining us lately or are still kind of confused about the topic? When a lot of these teams come up and they say, we want to have a new token to do whatever, and it could range from being a platform or being a function on top of a platform, so Ethereum being a good example of a platform, something like um, OMG, Omni's Go being on top of that, adding some kind of functionality, The developers say, well, let's go raise money in Ether and or in Bitcoin and let's use it to help develop and let's give people that are giving us money these new tokens when they become available so that right now they're a placeholder. As these things become functional, will become a functional unit within that system. Um, Ethereum famously did this in 2014, raised about $20 million. Tezos has done about a quarter billion dollars now uh, very recently why we're worried about this, obviously, we're talking about very big numbers here, $2,250 million. Um, you start adding that up, and we've got over $2 billion that have gone out in far it's ICO funding. People are worried that the developers, uh, the teams that are putting this out, don't always have the, the interest of the investor at heart. Um, and a lot of people have started to say, maybe we need to regulate ourselves. Maybe we need to think about a better way to do this.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess when you're dealing with something that is seen both as a brand new way of raising capital to fund effectively a startup type of idea. There's going to be a lot of people that are really interested in getting their hands on that capital, but there's also going to be some opportunists that come along and just grab the capital because it's there. And then, of course, there are people that are uh, complete scammers and frauds or even people using it for money laundering or kind of uh, criminal activity as a way of hiding what's going on. And I guess a code of conduct is designed to be a helpful framework for people to avoid that because uh, overwhelmingly there will be people who want to do this and do it well and to legitimize the space. And of course the, um, the Crypto Valley Association has been around for Couple of years now, and there was only twelve organisations involved at launch. There are now over two hundred and twenty corporate and individual members. They are growing and becoming progressively more influential. Uh, so, I look forward to this guidance coming out because that's the sort of thing I think this space needs to really cross over from being nice interesting off in the corner but not something that uh really touches the big world of financial markets of course we had jennifer p from the dtcc on last week's show uh, and she was talking about the scale of their operation with one market being 15 trillion and another one over here being 1.5 quadrillion coming through their system like they are dealing with mega numbers uh, and if the or world of financial services is ever going to benefit from it it needs at least something a code of conduct is a good place to start and i note with interest as well that the Uh, Abu Dhabi Global Market um, issued some ICO guidance. And I want to give a shout out to um, the Abu Dhabi Global Market because there's been a flurry of ICO guidance lately. And what I like about this one is it's from a tone perspective it starts by saying they recognize the innovation they recognize the opportunities they recognize that this could be a really interesting new set of business model for the entire financial services industry but not just the financial services industry if we're moving to a world in which uh, decentralized energy is becoming more of a thing if people are moving from capex to Opex and they're paying for performance not paying for uh, upfront uh, fixed investment then smart contracts and IoT become absolutely critical to that. Changing business models become critical to that. So blockchain becomes an enabler and tokens become an enabler. So generally being open-minded to that and offering for people to come talk to the regulator, like come talk to us if you're doing something interesting. I hadn't seen this in a lot of spaces before. Uh, so it seems like Switzerland and maybe to a lesser extent Abu Dhabi are, are a little bit different to what we've seen from the likes of uh, the PBOC and, and South Korea, Colin?
1: Absolutely. And it's it's really positive to see. Um, I don't know how much of this is a knee-jerk reaction from seeing what's going on with their neighbors, Dubai, very notably, um, which is, a, despite being in the same country, is a very distinct entity. I would really like to see this tone, and hopefully, um, being that they have less um, securities law behind them, they can be more agile. Um, and hopefully we don't see the same thing we've been seeing in countries like China and South Korea, or in the United States that have been coming at it with um, a very old set of laws that haven't really adapted to this. We'll see where this goes, um, but it's definitely one to put on your watch list if you're interested
0: in ICOs. I agree. Keep watching these innovative jurisdictions and watch for codes of conduct becoming something that ICOs and token sellers start to voluntarily take on as a, as a kite mark of good practice. Okay, Colin, uh, got to move us to this story from Reuters. And I this headline just deserves its own like uh, breaking news music or something. You know, like they have the 60 minute stuff in the US and like just really dramatic music. Chaos and hackers stalk investors on cryptocurrency exchanges. That Colin, this this one from Reuters reads a bit like a takedown of the entire crypto space. Like interesting article by the Reuters guys. Good investigative journalism. What are their key points?
1: I, I love this article. This is my favorite article of Bitcoin for a long time. So what they've looked at is kind of all of the things that um, are causing problems. And and we covered Tim Swanson's blog post uh, was it last week. Uh, and talked about some of the things that had problems. These guys kind of took it and ran with it almost. They start out this story, and it's definitely worth a read. It's a bit of a long read, and it's definitely worth your time going through it. But they talk about this guy, um, Dan Wasiluk, I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, um, in the United States who is raising money to um, create something that was a cryptocurrency exchange. Um, he put money inside of another exchange, and boom, it all vanished. Um, and now he's awaiting trial in the U.K., where people are charging him with the loss of 750 bitcoins or about $3 million because of potential fraud, uh, amongst a few other things, uh, terrorist financing, all kinds of things that you wouldn't really want to get caught up with. What I found really, really interesting, and there's a great quote in here um, where he's saying, if you're starting an exchange and you lose clients' money, you and your company should become uh, 100% accountable for that loss. But at the same time, he's pleading not guilty for losing that money, despite the fact there was another company in there, which I understand, but he did lose that money. So um, I don't know that this will work out in his favor when he goes to court. They talk a bit about the story of Mount Gox, and this happening a few times. But what was really interesting here is they talked a lot about the, the Chinese exchanges, BTCC or BTC China. Um, being one of the really focal points. And they're talking about the MMM, which was a big Ponzi scheme in Russia that was very open about being a Ponzi scheme that they helped put money through. They also talked about um, Bobby Lee, the CEO, who's an American citizen, um, actively taking in money from the North Korean uh, and Iranian governments, um, helping moving that through Bitcoin, which is absolutely illegal uh, for an American citizen to be doing. And he's pushed it through all kinds of weird entities here, there and everywhere.
0: And it makes complete sense then that you'd see uh, that the Chinese authorities would come and try and stamp that out. Like, if you are seeing people breaking sanctions rules or moving money on behalf of jurisdictions that are against the law, then those those regulators are going to regulate. Um, maybe we need some Warren G. sample for that. But there's there's... It's definitely something to be said for there is a part of this space that needs to be cleaned up. And if it is, that's the key to it being legitimized and mainstream because I've often been of the view that if you want to get caught doing this stuff, do it on Bitcoin because it's really easy to go back, for a regulator to go back two, three years later and have a perfect audit trail and see exactly who did what, when and where. I mean, okay, so there is a bit of anonymity in Bitcoin and there's some mixer services and there are a few things you can do if you're really clever to hide, but then you just look dodgy if you hide. So uh, you kind of got to get to the point where this space being cleaned up, these sorts of exposés, whilst they're painful in the short term, are probably good for the long-term mainstreaming.
1: Yes and no. Um, I mean, the the thing I have to worry about with this is, yes, it's good to have regulators come in and clean it up. Um, The the bigger question I have on top of this is, are these people um, running these things right now making a quick buck on that? Is there interest really um, in how to make Bitcoin a mainstream thing, or is it simply how can I make the most amount of money and get out of this thing as quickly as possible?
0: But that's why I think that uh, the, those people who are trying to make a quick buck need to be, uh, from for the good of mainstreaming the thing if that is what you want, they need to be pushed out or discouraged in some way. Now, I know there are a lot of purists who would argue that this Bitcoin stuff should never be uh, controllable, should never be regulatable, and heck, that was its whole point for being originally. But I just wonder if that's where it ends up. The original point of the internet was to change governance and communication but actually now what you've got facebook and google but that's that's the lo- way of the world to get things mainstream sometimes it's not necessarily uh, the way it was envisioned by its its original founders i suspect we may see a similar process here um, but again I echo your sentiment, Colin. Uh, This is a very well-done bit of investigative journalism, if a little cynical, but very, very useful in exposing some things that are genuine problems uh, in the space. But changing direction a little bit from kind of the the pure just kind of space we see of tokens and icos and bitcoin drama computerweekly.com here has a story where her majesty's revenue and customs also known as the tax authority in the uk have built a proof of concept blockchain for the uk border so they've built a concept that demonstrates you can actually get all of the 28 organizations that act on the border to coordinate all of their risk interventions so they only do it once and they do it well. So, like, here's the thing. I get people debating this all the time. Oh, why are governments using this stuff? Uh, It's supposed to be decentralized. And and we hear this about um, uh, financial services a lot as well. A good friend of the show once told me, um, why don't they just use APIs for this stuff? And perhaps APIs are more interesting in the short term for things like tax returns. And uh, there is somebody in this article that says they just want the governments to get digital basics right. But there's something in the idea here that I do think is correct. The idea that many departments with many database silos that don't communicate and don't reconcile could communicate and could reconcile, I think is a good one. But that's going to anger maximalists and purists. What are your thoughts on this one, Colin?
1: I'm going to get on my soapbox here. Um, I really like the idea of governments using this for efficiency. Um, But reading through this article, frankly, it's scary as shit. Um, I'm just going to read one of the quotes out of here. Um, The the CDIO, the Chief Digital and Innovation Officer, says, as of April, if you have a child, we will tell other people in government. I I think it's great to link up everything and help people match. But honestly, massive fail for messaging. Um, I I don't know how this guy is putting these things into print. Uh, It just sounds like a disutopian future. And I'm not a a crypto anarchist or libertarian. uh, And I find that scary when people start talking about Just the message of we're going to tell everybody here, there and everywhere when you have a child. I mean, I just imagine going into the hospital and boom, you've already got a tax number.
0: Yeah, the messaging side of it's a difficult one. They they, they had this with um, their uh, kind of social welfare distribution project uh, six months ago where a journalist picked it up and said, oh, it's really, really bad because you're trying to um, distribute welfare and tell people what they can spend their money on when actually, no, that was never the goal. It was to reduce the amount of fraud happening, but also just see how people are spending their money so they can tweak policy to, to give that visibility. It, it's a hard, fine line to, to tread, uh, but I do think this idea of Like, let's not go to those extremes of, uh, like, knowing everything about everybody. Let's take the stuff we already know or or things that nobody would disagree with. Like, it'd be really cool if I didn't have to change my address in 15 different places Um, and I could change it for my passport and it updated my driver's license and blah, 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 blah. Stuff like that that's useful get that right, use those examples, and control your messaging. Uh, because it makes sense to me you'd have those in separate database silos. You don't want one central point of government that's going to get hacked. You want to distribute that. Um, so having something that create, brings those to consensus, I think, is useful.
1: Absolutely. And I think, as you say, it's it's really coming down to messaging. And I think governments really need to remember as they innovate, which is a great thing, um, that they need to not lose sight of giving accountability to their citizens um and not making stupid comments like users should simply don't understand the machinery of government and how it works and frankly they don't want to and they shouldn't need to know either i mean i don't want to be overly involved i'll be honest but i'd like i'd like the idea that i could at least figure it out and people going out saying we're going to innovate and make things more complicated with newfangled technology and you don't really need to know how it works is not the the best message to be sending out so definitely work on that uk government um but definitely love to see that they're trying something.
0: And how many organizations of government are able to try things and they it's very very difficult when you try things to not get this kind of backlash i encourage the idea of trying something in a small way and doing pocs because that's a great way to learn even if you're a large organization in fact probably more important if you're a large organization um, but speaking of large organizations uh, there's probably one that's very well known for being uh, a bit of a lumbering giant in the database space so the story on coindesk here is uh, oracle call the database giant unveils their enterprise blockchain strategy. I'm imagining there was some ribbon cutting ceremony and like there was just uh, confetti um, and I get why this is seductive. If I'm sitting in some large corporation and I've got a whole bunch of Oracle stuff inside my organization um, then something where I can have that blockchain magic with all the bells and whistles or accelerators um, as enterprises like to be sold that you, it's going to integrate to your ERP it's going to integrate to your existing data. Databases. Well, that sounds great. Um, but I guess there's um there's a few things in this article about in you know, Oracle if they're doing databases. Somebody I think at Coindesk asked them, Are you not actually threatened by blockchain? Doesn't if you're selling basically traditional databases, doesn't blockchain come along and threaten you? I mean, Colin, what do you think of that?
1: it's a tough question to answer. I mean, um obviously these things switch a lot of things. Um, not all blockchains require that you send everything to everyone. Um, I guess not all DLTs, if let, let's say it properly. Um, but uh, it, it may challenge what they're doing. It may not. I, I do like to see that they're forward thinking in this. Um, I also love the irony and how everybody in in Bitcoin land loves to say, oh, well, that doesn't that doesn't work. Just use an Oracle product. And now they have a blockchain project. Um, so that's quite good. Um, it almost seems like their hands are forced. Maybe they were just taking kind of a slow, steady path to understand where they wanted to be. Um, but they are behind the likes of IBM and Microsoft. And at the same time, you have things like um, IPFS and Filecoin that are coming in really after the traditional blockchain space um, matched up with the database space. And of course, there's lots of other things out there like BigchainDB uh, that are trying to attack the, the blockchain and database side. And it's fantastic to see that they finally move forward. But I'd like to see some um, interesting things rather than just catch up.
0: interesting things rather than catch up i i agree with i can feel people who are blockchain purists again saying this is just you know what on earth is uh, a database vendor doing a blockchain for? They're just cashing in on the PR. But as you see in recent weeks, uh, Corda has hit 1.0. Fabric has been at 1.0 for some time now. And these projects are moving into those pilots with real transaction, real money moving on them. And that value of consensus that we talk about in enterprise, I think people often don't understand that problem of I have lots of different data silos. I can't just use an API to connect them all. One, because that database doesn't expose an API. Two, Two, because when I do, the data doesn't match, which is, is kind of a different problem. But three, um, I have to have those silos in place, and it can't be easy for them to communicate. I need a, a bunch of security underneath how those things reconcile. Uh, and there are a number of approaches to do that. Corder um, is one approach. Fabric is another approach. Um, but it's it's one thing, as a friend of the show, Ajit Tripathi says, to give somebody... And uh, the uh, the tool—it's another thing for that tool to integrate with everything they've already got going on. If you think about a large corporate, um, they've got a lot of systems already, and to have something that can slide into those systems and, and fit right in there, uh, it, it could be really, really appealing. But I just—it just feels like, yeah, they, they've entered late. Um, maybe this is a gateway for people who hadn't been thinking the space was legitimate to to start to think it's legitimate. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who they support um, and and what different dlts they support because i know they are uh, members of uh, Hyperledger. i think they're in EEA, but i need to fact check that um so don't quote me on that people um and we'll, we'll find that out and we'll see if we can reach out to oracle to, to get somebody to, to talk about it all right colin i love this story there's a cryptocurrency for the dogs called fetch coin I, I just like i'm imagining doggy treats or something like what is fetch coin this that this just what
1: <laughs> oh man it's, it's too good like um I, I saw a lot of people going through our slacks talking about oh yeah this is uh the pets.com of icos we're done stick a fork in it uh, fetch is a is building a social platform uh to keep tabs and communicate with your dog and cat throughout the day and receive rewards for their daily activities of course using artificial intelligence and blockchain because Hell, why not? I I don't really know what the point of this thing is. It's hilarious to see it. Um, I wish them all the best, but I really don't understand it. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to get a hold of somebody and figure out if this shouldn't be one of the things that um, Crypto Valley wouldn't touch because it doesn't make their code of conduct. I'm hoping it's not, and I hope it's really something cool that I just don't understand yet.
0: I can't figure out if this is a mockumentary, you know, like The Office, where like it's they're playing it straight-laced, but actually it's just a big joke, and they're raising money to mock the whole space. Like, if they are, it's genius, and if they're not, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe we should launch an Office coin. Um, it's the it, same idea. There's a lot of people out there that are taking the piss out of um, ICO, this may be one of those but it is just it's hilarious the idea
0: I love it. Well, uh, here's hoping that Code of Conduct does does come sooner rather than later and help everybody understand the ICO space. Looks like the enterprise space continues to gather pace, and there are a whole bunch of stories we couldn't cover this week. Um, one that I think is super interesting is the blockchain startup Circle are launching their open source project to send money more like email and text. And what I loved in this one is that they're going to talk to Silicon Valley companies like PayPal and others to say, here is a protocol that gets you around the existing payment systems that's, that we've sort of built. That's a bit similar to Ripple, a bit similar to the way ETH moves money, but they've kind of taken all of those ideas and built their own thing. Super interesting. Keep watching that one. Uh, another headline in Crypto Coins News Dragon Chain ICO, which is probably one of the most um, dude bro names for an ICO I've ever seen. Um, they're going to try and commercialize the project they did with Disney and blockchain. Um, go to CryptoCoin News to find out more. Uh, there's a story from IPFS about building an uncensorable Wikipedia, which if you're in parts of the world where Wikipedia is censored, uh, could be could be super helpful. And IPFS continues to innovate, continues to be the future of distributed decentralized computing. Um, and then, of course, a really great story if you want to go all the way down the rabbit hole from Noon, Gamifying the delivery of money. So Noon, gamifying the delivery of money a big shout out to all those guys so um that's it for the news colin g platt a really big exciting set of news there um don't forget listeners if you want to hear more about the show or what's on the show give us your views Tell us what's going on at B Chain Insider on Twitter. That's the letter B, Chain Insider, and share your thoughts. Or just reach out to at Colin G. Platt or at S.Y. Taylor if you want to pick on us personally. Um, I'm sure we're not always uh, right on the money, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Also, you can drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. And remember, uh, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks and asset managers or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more, to get live with projects, to do real things. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects, then uh, when they're going to be real, or you just need a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. And uh, you can find out a lot more at 11FS.com. And we are hiring. Do check out the careers page. Okay, Colin G. Platt, until next week, it's been good to catch up with you, sir. Hope you keep well. Thank you. You too. And now I have a couple of interviews coming up. And the first one, if you're interested in the subject of supply chain and uh, blockchain and DLT, Scott Nelson of Sweetbridge walks us through all of that and does so, I think, wonderfully. So over to Scott and myself. I'm joined by Scott from Sweetbridge. Uh, Scott, how are you today?
2: Great, Simon. Thanks for having me.
0: Scott Nelson, of course, you are, uh, I guess, one of the founders of the SweetBridge Foundation. Um, before I get onto a little bit about what SweetBridge is, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, how did you get into the blockchain space? What made you curious?
2: Sure. I am a CEO who had a supply chain business that was doing settlement activity for some of the largest corporations in the world uh, as a SaaS platform. Sold it to a PE firm two and a half years ago and found myself sitting on a beach, um, you know, starting to read about what was going on in the world and decided, you know, wow, the stuff in the blockchain has really moved. Uh, I had become aware of it in early, early days when my son-in-law, who's a bit of a hacker, had tried to, uh, to buy some and I told him, you know, I thought it was a scam. <laughs> Uh and as I got into what was happening with Ethereum and whatnot, I, I realized, oh my goodness, this is uh there's a lot more to this and I need to take a second look.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you look at something once and it's too early and you look back at it and it's making a lot of sense. Uh, So talk to me about your thought process, really, of looking at somebody who had been in supply chain financing, had run a successful business, had some spare time. What problems did you see in the market and how did you see blockchain starting to address those?
2: So, you know, for really more than a decade, I had been thinking about things like, how do you get the next generation of supply chains. And and just to help your audience understand supply chain, uh, supply chains manage everything you touch, use, eat, look at, live in, drive in. Uh, The creation of that thing was done by a supply chain. If it didn't come from Mother Nature, it came from the supply chain. And uh, so this is $54 trillion of GDP. That's what the supply chains of the world generate. And these are networks, massive networks. They're far bigger than DAOs and other kinds of things, but they're autonomous and they've been decentralized and distributed really through all of history. And I I had been very interested in how could you basically use network principles and decentralized autonomous uh, structures and protocols for quite some time to create a much more uh, efficient supply chain process. And so what I found in the blockchain was the thinking that was necessary to do it. And and the from my point of view, and this is something most people haven't recognized, the blockchain combines three things at once into a single execution state. It combines it combines law and regulatory uh, uh, activities, value and, and monetary activities, and state in an atomic transaction. And we never have had the ability to bind all of those things into a transaction that either they all succeed or they all fail. Um, and and that, that is profound. What that can actually do for supply chains is just amazing.
0: So let's go through a worked example, right? So I'm um, somebody that's building, let's say, a a car or I'm building mobile phones and I'm selling them to consumers. I'm going to have a whole bunch of suppliers right down to the raw parts themselves. So the the individual bits of sand that make the glass to the sand that ends up making the silicon on the chips, right through to the people that then fabricate those chips and supply them to the Samsungs and the Apples of the world, right through to the people at the retail stores or the people at the telcos. So talk to me about some of the problems that a large company or a medium-sized company has in that process um, with the way things are today and, and how uh, blockchain solves some of those problems.
2: So I, I want to focus on what the largest problem in that space is, which is liquidity. And to, to help uh, you, you know people in the audience understand what liquidity really means in a supply chain, you're talking about... Trillions and trillions of dollars that are tied up in inventory, invoices, orders, uh, because unlike your kind of consumer life, when a business buys something, they don't pay for it immediately, and when an order comes into a business to make something, they they have to spend money before they basically get get paid. It's not it's not like uh, selling something out of a shop or selling something out of a restaurant where you just have a you know people come in they they buy a burger and you. You make it and you deliver it to them. There can be months or more that can be tied up in this process. In fact, typically it's at least two months from the time that an order is received by a business until they actually get paid for it. And there are tens of trillions of dollars tied up in this process inside of uh, the supply chains of the world. And when you get these supply chains down to the to what are called the roots of the chain, this is where you're getting the mining the 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 sand mining the copper you know those kinds of things. That's happening typically in underdeveloped countries where capital is scarce. It's difficult to get and it's expensive. And so, uh, if you take something simple for people to understand, rice, and, and you know we're working with a a, a firm Bincabi that's trying to reinvent the rice trade. And a shocking 20% of the price of a bag of rice on the retail shelf is financing charges. Wow, that's hugely significant. So the money men in the middle are causing 20%
0: of the cost of rice on your supermarket shelf.
2: Well, and and rice is the food of the world. It's the food that feeds most of the people on the planet. So 20%. (laughs)
0: That's significant when you're looking at a world with potential food shortages and hunger. Uh, that's that's really significant. It's shocking,
2: right? And 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 so it's really easy to understand that. Um, in any business, uh, you can look at if you could just re- eliminate the cost of liquidity or provide it at all, you'd be looking at an average of two to four percent increase in profit margin.
0: That's really significant. Um, I, I think it, you, if you ask any executive, do you want a two to four percent increase in profit margin? Um, they'd say yes. So t- talk to me about how we get there and um, A/B test that. Right. So from from the processes we have today for getting liquidity, talk me what talk me through what that looks like. That actual raising of capital, um, and then also like yeah, liquidity getting stuck in a thirty day payment cycle. Um, I, I think probably explain those two and then. A, B, that versus what it's like to do it in, in this new blockchain world?
2: Sure. So first, it's not um, 30 days. It's on average 52. And that's from the shipment of the goods to payment, not the order. If you include the order, it's closer to 90 days. So um, the company has been burning money for 90 days from the time they got the order to fulfill it till they got paid. And, uh, and so that's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money. And that doesn't include... Uh, all of the costs of the money that they might have to borrow if they get it, or whether they can even access it. If you're in India or China or or you know Vietnam or someplace like that, it, you probably can't even access it. Or if you do, the costs are just prohibitive. So th- that's part of the problem. And then the the other part of the problem is how we choose to manage risk. So think of it this way: the the world's um, supply chains generate fifty four trillion dollars of profit. That's their contribution to GDP. GDP is profit. It's not the sales number. It's the profit number. And that means that after all the bad actors, after all the thefts, after all the fires, after all the hurricanes, after all the the, um, things that go wrong and bad, there's still $54 trillion of profit, which means that the commercial activity of the world can more than manage all of the counterparty risk in the world. But what we've done is we've basically outed this risk to intermediaries who basically try to manage the risk statistically by only looking at pieces of the puzzle. And uh, in my old business, what we found is that the largest reason why a large corporation doesn't pay a bill isn't because they are bad actors or just trying not to pay the bill, but because they believe there's some kind of data error in in, in the invoice in the first case. And this is actually a very, very large percentage of the things that don't get paid in the supply chain.
0: That's hugely significant, the fact that y- you would not get payments as a business just because there's an error on a form somewhere. Um, but this is an, a- an issue as old as time itself. Surely um, bureaucracy can be solved. with. We just need some of that digital stuff, right?
2: Well, actually, it's shocking. Let me give you another statistic we found in my own business. It, the more you automate, the greater the errors go up.
0: And that makes a lot of sense, because if you're automating what you're actually doing is automating your worldview, not, um, not something like paper, which actually is a low-tech technology, has a number of advantages. Paper has stuck around because it's the least worst technology we have, whereas the digitization that we all thought was fantastic has actually gone against the natural order of global trade, which like, where do you centralize trade around? Who, who's the one body, who's the one government, who's the one bank? there isn't one it's it's many to many so you paper works really well for that model
2: well and and paper the the beauty of the paper was that people could edit it easily and they could read it when they were passing it when we pass electronic signals nobody reads it and we're not allowed to edit it so it gets out of sync with reality because of two things one is we don't see it so we don't even know it has an error and second um it has uh uh, we, we've so protected the data in silos from fear that someone's going to access it and do something bad that we don't allow people to access it and do something good. But surely this um, AI stuff is going to fix all that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not
0: being facetious, honestly. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> I, don't,
2: I don't think so. Um, but uh, but let's talk about it, you know, how the blockchain fits in, how, how things can be helped. Um, real trade is done between organizations that trust one another. The bulk of trading activity that occurs in the world happens between people that have known each other for a long time and work together all the time. And they are not trying to basically hurt each other in a way that is um, trying to defraud one another in invoicing and settlement processes because they would basically go out of business if they did. You know, I don't trust you. I'm not going to trade with you. So, these issues really aren't real. A lot of these errors get worked out, they get settled out, they get you know, figured out. And it's just that the banks and others would are looking at the transaction stream, they say, well, you know, look at the 6% of the invoices never got paid. Um, well, in reality, some of those invoices had already been paid. They were duplicates and other ones were errors and they got new ones sent and, and other things. And the real business activity really occurs. There's not all this risk that's seen there. So uh, what it means is the blockchain allows you to basically protect all of the parties in a supply chain. So if you have party A selling to party B, selling to party C, if party B doesn't pay party C, uh, you can actually use the blockchain to route the payment from A to B, not to B, but to actually C instead. And uh, this can be done because the blockchain is a ledger. It's It's an accounting system. And you can actually track the accounting of all the parties in the chain to see whether they are actually doing the right thing. But how do you trust the inputs to
0: that blockchain? I mean, ah, there's, well, there's- that's
2: the good, that's the big question, right? So, how do you trust the inputs? Well, the the if the inputs are um, if the inputs are the things that are that are coming in and going out of the same organization, i.e., the accounting systems, debits and credits. Uh, if somebody's playing around with that, they can't do that for very long. And uh, since you're dealing with parties that people have already selected to work with as a business partner, you can basically offset the risk of one party that is a partner with another. And we can do this through, um, uh, we, we can do this purely through accounting entries that happen as a result of a digital currency. And instead of actually going to fiat, We can actually use digital currencies in this process to trade with that if it turns out you've lied, you can actually um, basically destroy. You can burn and, and make it worth nothing. And because you are now creating a digital currency that you can exchange between the parties, you can give the parties liquidity. That they can actually use to send on to other parties that are in the same supply chain. And this can be anchored by somebody, say, like an Apple computer or by, you know, a, a Glaxo Smith Klein or um, somebody other at the top of the, of the supply chain who, who extends this through the supply chain to its suppliers who it does tons of diligence on uh, um, and, um, and provide liquidity through that whole pipe without any cost whatsoever for interest
0: so you're looking at a system in which because this accounting engine is shared from that shared accounting engine you can build in theory if you have the right governance around it shared risk models and or at least balance out the risk through that network which is effectively what you were saying already happens in the economy um we're just doing this across uh, a, a, an accounting ledger that is now shared and the data is now effectively more harmonized rather than being silent correct
2: and and by doing this what you're what, what you can actually do is you can kind of create a central banking function that allows the members of the supply chain who have the strength and the assets and the credibility to basically anchor the supply chains, uh, 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 their their supply chains and their suppliers' supply chains and their suppliers' suppliers' supply chains and distribute and use a digital token as the settlement process. And you can actually do this in such a way where that token is pegged to um, real-world assets, um, real-world uh, 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 currencies um, or commodities so that uh, it's stable. And, and therefore, it's not like trading, you know, the idea that you're going to use Bitcoin or these other things, it's just never going to happen uh, because they're non-stable tokens. And I, you don't want to have exchange risk inside of your supply chain because you could lose all your profit or make a windfall um, for things that had nothing to do with how well you ran your supply chain or your business.
0: The the challenge of uh, these stable coins, as as often they're called, and and tethering uh, real-world assets to what is effectively a blockchain token, which I assume is uh, somewhat decentralized here. It's going to be based on some uh, open-source decentralized type um, uh, approach if that's the case getting those uh, to sit with inside a regulatory framework can be challenging have you thought about how um, that becomes compatible that the regulatory frameworks that exist around the world become compatible with with um, the Sweetbridge foundation and can you tell us a little bit about what it is specifically that you're building
2: sure so the protocols to do all this are open source and are free for the world and they uh, they can be used by anybody. Although we have uh, applied for patents on them, we've only applied for patents to protect them from being, you know, from somebody trying to, you know, steal them. Then, for to deal with the regulatory onboarding and offboarding of real world assets, we've been setting up uh, for-profit entities in different legal jurisdictions that will basically handle handle that. So, for example, inside of the Sweetbridge uh, ecosystem. If you have the membership tokens in our our ecosystem, you will be able to actually move fiat to crypto and back to uh, fiat free at no charge. You'll be able to get loans free, interest free at no charge. And you'll be able to do foreign exchange free at no charge. Plus conduct settlement activity uh, internationally between parties at no cost. And this includes both the data movement and the financial movement related to those things. And that's all enabled by this magical blockchain uh, technology in this global computing system. Plus a regulatory interface that exists in each of the major, um, we're trying to go for the nine major economies of the world to create these interfaces in each of those. We've already gotten regulatory um, uh, processes started in four of them. Um, the United States the UK EU and uh, separating UK and the EU with the idea that of brexit but <laughs> and, and Switzerland so uh, you know that that's that's underway and then uh, our next is to focus on uh, p- places in Asia which we're still working on trying to put in place
0: this makes a lot of sense I, I think it's a uh, hugely uh, well thought through problem statement and solution. What I'm curious about now I suppose is uh, how you gain critical mass because it's uh, it's a problem that I think a lot of people in large corporations or even in small businesses will have felt and we've seen companies like um, Trade Shift and others do a lot in the small business space about trying to make these, uh, you're trying to build really good software tools to make uh, life easier for people uh, on this front but really building this, this vision of a global decentralized network. We saw it with Bolero, we saw it with S docs in uh, in some of the some of the trade pieces that would then link to supply um, and Swift are now talking about their GPI initiative that's supposed to solve uh, all things to all people. So why is it Sweetbridge gets success and 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 does well?
2: Um, simply because we actually have the whole package um, and because of all the hype. You know, there's a lot of hype and a lot of bad stuff out there being done, but. What that's actually done is it's created an amazing amount of awareness inside of uh, corporations and uh, other uh, places, governments and whatnot, that this is something that they ought to be actually looking at and investigating. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, We're actually a project that has done uh, focus groups. Imagine that. Actually going out, talking to potential customers. Um, (laughs) And we've basically got almost 100% hit. I mean, actually, I mean, you won't believe me, but we've had a 100% hit. And the reason is, is because we're offering the complete integrated strategy for their supply chain. So it's not just a financial strategy. We're offering all the information exchange too. And it's not just an information exchange strategy. We're offering to integrate with all of their systems. And we're doing that by bringing together through our alliance, all of the blockchain projects. There are about 500 of them that uh, are out there working on the supply chain and and supply chain related processes and creating a common backbone and backplane for all of them to share information under one unified uh, economic model. And nobody has thought about the fact that you have to do this. And then we're doing this with the legal tech that allows you to basically bring these things on and off the blockchain within inside of real regulatory environments. No one's working on that either. And uh, so this is very, very different. So all these other things are kind of point solutions. But when you think about them very much, they, they they leave all the work left for you. You have to put all the pieces together yourself. And you know, if you're a bank or something, that makes sense. Maybe you want to do it. But if you're a typical business, there's no way you're going to do that.
0: No, that makes complete sense, Scott. So uh, if you're a typical business and you have some of the problems Scott's talked about, Scott, where can people find out more about Sweetbridge?
2: Uh, Go to sweetbridge.com and uh, join the chat.
0: Fantastic. Scott, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you, Simon so thank you very much to scott nelson a uh, great view of supply chain there and if you've ever wondered why uh, people get so excited about supply chain and dlt hopefully we've given you some insight um next i spoke to abesa phillips from zela um Ibesa comes to us from japan and has been looking at the token space and ico space for some time and of course japan as we know has been quite open-minded as a jurisdiction uh interesting one to get to so over to abesa Great. So I have the good fortune of being here with Abisa Phillips from Zilla discussing some of the opportunities, risks uh, in the ICO space and what Zilla are doing about it. Uh, Abisa, how are you, sir? Hey, not bad. Thanks. Thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. So uh, before we get into Zilla and uh, really some of the challenges with token sales, can you tell me a little bit about your own background?
3: Sure. So I've been in Japan for the past 15 years I was the former country manager in Japan for a, a payment company called Paysafe. I've been involved in cryptocurrency since 2011, and uh, I speak Japanese and Chinese and uh, a bit of English.
0: That's one heck of a skill set you have there, making you pretty valuable in this uh, day and age. I can imagine. Definitely. Alrighty, so Abisa. Talk to me about your journey into the ICO space. What do you see, where are we at from a market perspective? We've obviously seen a lot of money raised. We've seen uh, some regulatory responses coming out of uh, Singapore and the People's Bank of China. Where are we at? What's the the challenge in the market?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, um, the regulators, they typically get involved when they see uh, consumers being taken advantage of. And, um, in this case, as, as you know, the ICO space has just been just out of control for the past few months now. And now you see, you know, China with their heavy hand, like they typically do, they come in, stopped everything. Korea has done the same. Japan has kind of walked that back a bit. And, um, yeah, the U S is kind of, is, is taking a level approach.
0: So that um, variety, I guess, in different regulatory approaches uh, is, I guess, challenging if you're doing something that's global in nature. There's, it's pretty hard to limit where somebody is, is buying these tokens from. Uh, and I guess uh, there is a different level of uh, sophistication of, of people doing uh, some of these token sales. What, what would you say are some of the key uh, regulatory uh, requirements? Because like, the way I see it, there's there's a couple of Buckets. There's scams, and then there's just straight unsophisticated investors. But maybe it's not a scam. And how how are you categorizing that um, set of challenges?
3: Right. Definitely cleaning up the market in terms of the ICOs and themselves being scams. Um, getting rid of them is um, is a challenge. And then there's so many new people involved in crypto, and you know there's a lot of hype behind these ICOs. So I guess bringing them up to speed. Getting them uh, knowledgeable about the blockchain, cryptocurrency, and also uh, teaching them how to evaluate these ICOs. You know, I go through, I have the four T's, what I call it, where it's timeline, team, token, and tech. And um, getting them to sort of understand that so they can do their due diligence on projects is important.
0: And so talk me through those four T's because, uh, you know, when you're talking about doing due diligence on a project, is that both, is that the investor or the regulator or both?
3: Uh, More from the investor side. Um, so the, I, for my opinion, the timeline is the most important, whether or not they have, uh, you know, a workable product or they're coming out with a workable product in a reasonable amount of time is important. Uh, of course the team is important being able to do due diligence on the team, uh, making sure they have the relevant experience to do what they say they're trying to do. The token, you know, how many uh, of the token that's being created, how much the token is, what the use is of the token, and then the overall technology. Is there a need for the tech? Um, What problems are they trying to solve? That sort of thing.
0: So I I guess team and timeline are the old-fashioned VC ones. Do they have a great team? Can they get it done? Uh, And I guess the technology one is is really, you could call it product. Like, is there a market need that they're solving? The new one there is token. Like, uh, what is this thing that they're building? As Patrick Merck um, from Cooley uh, and Berkeley said on a few episodes ago, is there a need for this token, or is this token just acting as shares? And if there's a need for the token, why is it needed? It is something that people really need to put a lot of thought into. Because if it's... And th- that t- seems to be this, uh, the separation. You've got these security tokens where they're acting like shares, and therefore... You could you regulate them as if they're shares? Yes, you probably could, but have you? Uh, and then you've got the ones that are app tokens, which actually look a lot more like an option or, or a put option against future revenues. So, how would you manage that? What are the right uh, fiduciary requirements to put around that? I think is an interesting question.
3: Right, definitely. And It seems like you know the SEC is they, they put out some guidelines and um, you know how how you're supposed to sort of classify these tokens. And uh, we haven't really seen other jurisdictions do so. Japan has kind of stepped off from that. But uh, I think I think what you mentioned is important, but it's also important to see sort of uh, like the numbers behind the token, how many are being created, what the costs are. That sort of thing. Yeah,
0: the economic side of it is, is, I guess, really key. So, if I'm launching uh, a, a token or an ICO, uh, what do I need to do to be able to get through those hoops? And then, what what uh, solutions are there available for me to to be able to do
3: that? Yeah. So, creating the ICO um, is actually a bit more complicated than than people typically think. You know, you need block relevant and skillful uh, blockchain developers in creating your token also uh you know figuring out the business plan if there's actually a need for what you're creating if there's actually a need for your token uh can what you're doing just actually be done over ethereum or bitcoin those sorts of things are are quite complicated like we've got there's companies in japan that have approached me who are like like for example like um like mooncake style sort of companies who want to do a blockchain Or, uh, like, there's there's a pancake here with bean paste in the middle called dorayaki. They wanted to do an ICO to raise money. It's like, calm down, guys. I don't see a reason for your token.
0: And I think that's a really crucial point is people see it as a path to raising money because lots of people are raising money, whereas actually the regulators are going, no, it's not just that. If you're looking to raise money and it looks like you're selling shares, then do that instead. Uh, And if it looks like you're raising money, then have a token and have a purpose. And by the way, there are all these tools out there that you could use to solve your problem. Why do you need to raise money to solve your specific problem? Other than the fact that you just want money, which I guess the regulators are fair to call out as being, hey, that's probably not the right thing to do. Just raising money for the sake of it—you have to have a purpose, right?
3: Right? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. You know, the biggest problems with the industry right now, though, are definitely on the consumer side and consumer protection side. And um, just just since there's there's seriously a, a crazy abundance of new users uh, in crypto. I mean, you know, my mom has a Coinbase account. And, you know, she doesn't really understand much about the blockchain, but she's interested in in getting involved. But there's so many pitfalls in actually participating in an ICO. And we're really trying to level the playing field and make it really easier uh, for people like that to... Evaluate and participate in an ICO.
0: So, talk to me uh, about some of those specific challenges somebody could find themselves with as they wade into, you know, trying to buy a, a token. Uh, and then talk to me a little bit about how Zilla goes about uh, solving some of those.
3: Sh- sure. So, um, like for example, if you're you're new to the ICO space, you want to participate. There's a cool product. You go to an exchange. Uh, you go through the KYC process where uh, you know you have to provide you know proof of uh, who you are, as well as proof of where you're domiciled. Then you you deposit some money on the exchange. You actually buy Ethereum. And then from there, you have to put the Ethereum on a, another wallet, transfer it to the ICO. It's just a long, drawn-out process, um, and it's quite difficult. Whereas uh, with Zilla, actually, um, you go through a very simple KYC process, uh, and then you deposit your money on Zilla, and then from there, you can quickly evaluate the team, uh, upvote and downvote the ICO and uh, participate in an ICO with one or two clicks. Very simple.
0: Wow. Okay. So you've got this sort of uh, crowd capacity for you know you're almost crowdsourcing the reputational risk of of uh, investing in an ICO. You're, it's crowdsourcing the research element of what would traditionally been done. So uh, if you look at somebody using fidelity uh they might also have a yahoo money account where they're getting their information about their funds and what they're going to invest in you're sort of combining those two into one your fidelity uh or or um i don't know in the uk it'd be nutmeg or scalable capital you're that you're that place you go to do your investments but actually just for tokens but also you've got that research side of it but done by the community itself
3: Right. We're sort of like a Fidelity and a Reddit, like uh, kind of balled up into, into one sort of thing. So you can actually, uh, you can evaluate the whole ICO and you can also evaluate, like, for example, the the token metrics. You can evaluate um, individuals in the team. You can evaluate different aspects of the, the white papers. So um, we get actually a lot of data as to uh, which ICOs are projected to perform. And um, the lower performing ones will kind of go to the, just like Reddit, to the bottom of the barrel and be a bit more difficult to find.
0: That's super interesting. So, uh, how are users uh, using that today? Are you live? Are you, how many users you got? Can can anybody sign up from anywhere in the world?
3: Yeah, we, we're we not live yet. We just opened the beta sign up. So, um, in the next three or four weeks, we'll open the beta up um, so that uh, you know users can get a feel for how the app works and most of the functionality that's coming really soon
0: but if i'm new and i've been using coinbase why would i use zilla if i've never heard of you and this whole space is brand new like what's the reason behind why i would trust your platform
3: right so um you know the whole space is very new and um you can't actually invest in an ico directly from coinbase but you know as you know there's many pitfalls to investing in an ico uh one is spoofed ICO sites. So actually, someone spoofed our site. So they make a duplicate of your site, and um, they they basically uh, uh, get users to to pay into a fake Ethereum address. Um, If you go through an app, you don't have any of those issues whatsoever. So so we kind of clean that aspect of investing in ICOs.
0: And you've got Uh, the community aspect as well uh, in terms of like once you're in, you've kind of got the additional support of uh, having other people who uh, are in the space helping filter uh, what's what's worthy of your attention and what isn't.
3: Right. That's right. Yeah. Also, um, you know, there's also another scam where you can impersonate members of the ICO team on Slack, so there's a lot of Slack scams, whereas with Zilla, you can actually communicate directly with the team through the app, so we kind of eliminate those two, two, the two of the major scams involved in investing in ICOs. That's for newbies, but for veterans, actually, we have a version, a premium version of the app called Zilla Black, and Zilla Black will allow, will give you, yeah, it gives you more data as to which ICOs are projected to pop and which ones are not. And you can invest in pre-ICOs at a low amount of of, uh, one Ethereum. So, yeah, we've got those two versions coming out.
0: Cool. Um, And so where can I go to find out more?
3: Yeah, zla.io is our website. So um, you can check out more information there and, uh, yeah, take a look.
0: Thank you very much, Ubesa. Thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. (laughs) Thank you thank you very much to abasa for being on the show well big thank you to all of our guests to scott to abasa and of course my co-host at colin g platt at colin g platt what have you got coming up in the next week um, more blockchain hijinks i'm sure
1: more blockchain hijinks and
0: warm weather on the beach uh, your travels uh, impress me as always thank you for listening if you like what you've heard please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on itunes i cannot tell you how much those reviews help us it's two minutes out of your time and if you like the show please do let us know and if you don't like the show drop me an email at podcast at 11fs.com and please tell us why we want to be better this is your show not mine Uh, 11fs the company that brings you the podcast as uh, a reminder we're a challenger agency who help banks and asset managers or anybody with a challenge in blockchain and dlt to achieve more get your projects live to do real things so if you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects when they're going to be real or just have a speaker for your next event we hope you'll get in touch we'll have more blockchain insider next week